So welcome everyone. Very happy to be joined by Richard Sklove today and looking forward to talking about his book, which is called Escaping Maya's Palace, um, decoding an ancient myth to heal the hidden madness of modern civilization. So, so much I want to ask you about this. I'd like to start here. You know, I heard you speaking about how you felt like you had no choice but to write this book, that it just kind of came to you as this is a project that you have to do. Why do you think this feels so important to you, this work? No, it's not so important to me. <laughs> it's important, it's important to something to else. It, 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 it's important to the gods, apparently. Yeah. Why do you think uh, it's important to them? They just, well, my professional life, I'd say since I was, I had a spontaneous Kundalini awakening when I was 28. I would say at least since then, all my important professional moves were dictated to me by the gods in, in some form. So why they do what they do, they don't tell me. They just, I just get, the, in various ways, it gets communicated what I'm supposed to do. And I got the, the idea for this book came to me during a nine-day silent meditation retreat. It floated up and it grabbed me and said, and there was no choice involved. So what was the central idea? Of the book? Yeah. I didn't know at the time. Um, I mean, the the central idea that emerged as I worked on it is that um, the, the book is basically addressing the question of why is our why is modern Western well mo now it's modern civilization so messed up <laughs> and and the the answer I come to is that that there the globe the disruptiveness of the global economy has quietly shifted psychological psychological development in a somewhat unfavorable way that has contributed to some of the ailments of the modern world. So how has uh, the global economy disruption done that? Um, what I work out, I'll give you the answer, I mean, the bottom line, but, you know, um, in effect, we it, the the way the economy is complemented by certain features of modern technologies um, has tended to disrupt um, the de the stability and density of social relationships and the density of our experiential relationships with the natural world, which for many people is a source of an experiential relationship with the sacred. So there's been a, dis a disruption, a thinning of social bonds and an a destabilization of social bonds. In effect, it's almost as though the world pushed us each away a little bit. And it had the effect of, I, I understand in my at first cut understanding of what the ego is in the spiritual world, I think of the ego as um, the unconscious process of erecting a psychological boundary and identifying with what you find on the inside. Mm. And that became that that self bound unconscious self bounding process as the world in effect pushed us away. It it sharpened we sharpened our egoic separation from everything that we don't perceive as me, and the that has a whole wide range of psychosocial effects as that plays out. So it's not that this intensification of ego identification never existed in world history. But it's become more of a mass phenomenon, and that that plays out in a bunch of ways that are fairly unfavorable to the individual and to the society. Mm. And and you're saying that kind of capitalism is what brought brought about um, greater global, yeah, ego global, identification. The of global, you see it happening with the emergence of global capitalism, kind of in the you know end of the 1500s, early 1600s. I mean, I can be more specific about some markers for that. That's this is being pretty yeah. abstract. Okay, so how? But how did capitalism do this? Well, where you see it, you know, what I sort of say is, I know I've, part one of my markers for getting into this is noticing something that historians, a, 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 a simultaneity that historians have known about, but they don't have a psycholo psychological or psycho spiritual lens for paying attention to it, which is that. 
It turns out that the emergence of a consumer society, which begins in certain parts of the world, a lot in North Northwest Europe, but parts of China too, but the emergence of, a, of, of consumer societies in which for the first time, more or less in history, lots of people are very preoccupied with buying stuff and doing whatever they have to do to earn enough money to be able to do that. The emergence of a consumer society turns out to coincide with the emergence of widespread consumption of addictive substances. If you look at the early global economy and the, especially the early North Atlantic slave economy, you know, beginning sort of late 1500s until industrialization, which is sort of towards 1800, for the first 250 years of, of globalization and the North Atlantic slave economy, most of what the slaves are doing is growing addictive stimulants for a, an emerging, for the, basically they're growing sugar in the Caribbean, coffee, <laughs> coffee in, in, in Brazil, uh, sugar's being turned into rum, they're growing tobacco in, you know, in, uh, on the eastern, you know, southern eastern seaboard. So tobacco, sugar, rum, coffee, these kind of addictive substances are most of what slaves are doing until industrialization means that now that they're turned towards growing cotton. And so the, you have this conjunction of, you know, suddenly the emergence of a consumer society, a subset of an important subset of that consumption, the driving motor behind really the, the emerging slave economy is, is for consuming things with addictive potential. And the thing we know, so historians know those two things happen, but don't make anything of it. They just think, okay, there's a subset you know, so there were some addictive substances. But but the thing is, if you look up a study up on modern addiction, addiction is understood as a developmental disorder. And when you see the emergence of two forms of intensive craving, on the one hand for consumer goods in general, on the other hand specifically for addictive substances, and the addictive substances are the expression of a developmental disorder, maybe that same developmental disorder has something to do with the emergence of consumer insatiability. And, and in both cases, I argue that underlying it is this intensification of ego identification, which expresses on the one hand in consumer insatiability, and on the other hand in a propensity towards addiction. Um, but, it, but it means that, it, that if, if that's true, we can get, you know, that has a lot of implications for how we have misunderstood what capitalism is about. So that's the developmental disorder is the ego identification. Intensified. It's not that there was an ego identification, but a, a more intense Intensified. form. It's partly as that boundary, in a, this is using metaphors you know, for something that we don't even know, understand how, how you would more accurately describe it. But if you think about it as, as the, ba the boundary that defines my ego as, it, as becoming more thick or impermeable or rigid, as people are experientially more cut off from the world, they experience an emptiness inside, and that expresses in, in, in an insatiable craving, which can become consumer craving or it can be, become addiction. Hmm. So in a way, would you say that, you know, the antidote for that is, is connection? feeling connected. That's to, right. To it's, it, yeah. In effect, I am saying that, or I mean, it, I mean, exactly what it means for what you would do to address it. I address in the back half of my book, but I'd like to say a little about what the implications of, for, of this for capitalism are, because I mean, we can tease it out, but I mean, at a first cut, we think of capitalism as the greatest engine that was ever developed for producing and distributing goods. I mean, we have very, some of us have problems. There's a downside to capitalism, which we're familiar with. But, but the, good, the upside and the reason most people say, on balance, we think it's a good system, is that it produces goods that, that, for, that create satisfaction for humans. And my book is saying there's a bit of an allusion to that because capitalism is not producing satisfaction. It's producing the psychology that means no matter what goods we acquire, there can be no enduring satisfaction because we have a psychology that's incapable of that. And right, the well, Buddha talked about this 2,500 years ago. And that means that people who sometimes when I talk with Buddhists, they sort of say that can't be right because the craving's always been with us. But if you look carefully as I have at anthropology and history, yes, human craving is universal. 
to some extent. But the insatiability of it and the intensity of it, there's historical markers that we're different than, than you know, pre-modern societies. Mm-hmm. The insatiability of it. I'll give you a marker for I'll give you one marker for it. After the Black Death in Europe in the 1400s, it wiped out a, a third to a half of European peasantry in parts of Europe where there was a wage economy, like in England. Suddenly, peasants were getting could earn more, had higher hourly wages because there was an enormous labor scarcity. So they could have done different things with that. Some of them, a minority of peasants, took advantage of higher wages to become wealthy, as wealthy as they could. They built house, they built, you know, they was typically certain small landholders who were more advanced peasants. They, they, some of them took advantage of higher wages to earn as much money as they could and build nice big houses and put lots of stuff in it. But a whole lot of peasants who had higher wages said thank you very much and they worked shorter days, fewer days and shorter hours. Hmm. So you're saying that in the modern times, probably the vast majority of people would choose to use that increase in you revenue. You can see it. When, employers, when your boss wants you to work more, they offer you higher wages. In the old, back, but back in Europe, that in that time, that wouldn't have worked for a lot of people because if you offered higher wages, they had the opportunity to say, good, I'm working, I'm cutting my 60-hour work week back to 34 hours. Yeah. So, you know, what I think is that there's something else uh, at play here. There's something else at play at, sure. that, 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 that's driving that, that decision. And what I feel like it is, is societal standing, right? Is that it's common today to be overworked, to be stressed out, right? To, there's not really much of a glorification culturally in living a simple life. I would say in order to live a simple life, you kind of have to be an outsider. I would say there, or, or there's even probably a stigma against that. There's something wrong with you. Why don't you want more stuff? You know? Well, I, I, I agree with you. And I haven't thought about this before, except you're talking about a phenomenon that's really quite recent. Meaning right now, in, you know, last 20 years, there's a, or there's a glorification of overwork. I mean, we have this weird reversal and, you know, in standard Marxist social critique, it's the lumpen proletariat, the people at the bottom who are forced to overwork. And we have this thing where professionals feel like they aren't, they've got to performatively work 80 hours a week to demonstrate. But that's quite recent. I'm describing a phenomenon that plays out over 400 years. So while what you're saying is true, I see that as a recent add-on. The, what I'm talking about has held pretty true for for several centuries. Right, but to me, the the really important factor to be aware of is the influence that culture has on our decision making. You know, whether it's recent or not, like that. For me, what's really important is to kind of just like honor the fact that very deeply rooted within myself is a desire to be a part of something larger, to be accepted within a community. I think most people have that. So whatever way the community goes, uh, there's gonna be a strong force that pushes me to go that way too, just so that I'm accepted by my peers, whatever the general- I agree with all that and I, though I, not an anthropologist. I've read my anthropology and I take culture seriously. On the other hand, it, we don't, we're kind of weak in our, in our society in understanding psychological developments, another factor in play. So psychological development is, is interacting with culture. They partly are expressions of one another. They're not, into, inter, they're not independent forces. But um, we tend to ignore psychological development because there's really not a concept that psychological development can, trajectories of it, on a mass basis can shift historically under the influence of historical forces. That's not really something, I mean, that's something I'm stumbling across. <laughs> I, and partly because I just accidentally found some markers for it. It's mostly because I'm able to use addiction as a marker for, psycholo- for a shift in psychological development. I found a lens that lets me look back in time to detect a shift that people haven't detected. Hmm. Specifically addiction. Hmm? specifically addiction. And yeah. it seems like kind of like a chicken or the egg thing potentially here uh, in terms of addiction and, and the, uh, the, the availability uh, to, you know, whatever it is, sugar, coffee, whatever the, the substance is, you know, is 
am I craving more of it because it's readily available? Or is it becoming more readily available because I have such a craving for it? And therefore, the, the uh, capitalistic engine is, is providing more of it because there's a, there's a demand. It's like, which one comes first? Well, except that my point is that the capitalist engine that's providing it is also create, catering to the demand is also creating, secretly creating the demand. So what is that? What is the, like, what is the, what is the, what is the secret? You know, is that something that just happened because someone had an idea of, of capitalism as, as a system? The, or, the, yeah. This was nobody's this was nobody's plan. At least yeah. nobody, no human, no human, no human bit person had this. I don't know. If, I don't know what the gods are doing up there. But this is no this was there's no conspiracy theory here. This is this this emerged, but not because anybody understood what was going on. Hmm. Nobody so where understood. did it go wrong? Do you think hmm? is there where did it go wrong? Like where where's the value in the, is there value in the in the in the capitalistic well, system? Well, yeah, there is value. I mean, when I look towards what I what I you know towards what I think we ought to be trying exploring for ways to get out of the binds we're in, because I haven't talked about the down the extent of the downside that comes with this. I mean, the downside is not addiction. Addiction is one of the downsides of what I'm talking about, but I'm using, but I'm stressing addiction because it's a marker and it lets me understand what's going on. But the ramifications of all the other consequences of this shift towards more intense ego identification plays out in an incredibly large array of personal and societal harms. Um, now, where was I going with that? I'm, I'm old. I, I lose my train. <laughs> well, the, the value of... of capitalistic model yeah yeah well okay yeah and when if you moved away if you the, the steps i i mean it's not like nothing good happened in the modern world <laughs> so if you were if you were trying to move into a system that was not built in effect to hold back our psycho-spiritual development because one feature by the way of, of intense ego identification one thing the ego does not want is to change it certainly doesn't want spiritual progress because to the ego ego transcendence is death and so the ego works super hard to me. You know, the more intense ego identification is, the more you've got a psychology that means that all those of us who are interested in spiritual development or who do psychotherapy and who want to grow, we do not understand the extent to which we are operating in a system that is optimized to make sure we're going to fail. Because the system depends on that. Capitalism depends on insatiability. If insatiability collapses, capitalism as we know it collapses. So the system requires insatiability to keep functioning as it does. And that insatiability is the expression of a psychology, intense ego identification, which more than anything else wants to make sure that our spiritual project will fail. And so the reason I think this community should be interested in this <laughs> is that we, we're living in a system that's making pretty sure that we're not going to succeed at transcending our ego. Uh, at the same time, I'm really excited that there's ways that things that like well, I mentioned to you before we started that, you know, for those of us like me who are both politically progressive and spiritually inclined. If and that's not a tiny group of people, it turns out that those are more intimately connected than we have understood according in the lights of my model that I've got running. Because on the one hand, the bad news is we've got a system, a, a global political economic system that's optimized to make sure we're going to be, stay stuck in ego identification no matter how hard we might try to get beyond it. On the other hand, if you look at the kinds of things that we do, forget about our spiritual self and now think about our political progressive self. If you look at the lot of the things that political progressives do, not everything, but a decent amount of what we work on is addressing the disruptiveness of capitalism, or and also it's complemented by hierarchies and injustice. Because when you have hierarchies and injustice, it that tends to, um, to inflate the egos of, the, of those at the top of hierarchies, while making everybody else more subject to the, dis the adverse disruptiveness that they are disempowered from, from re responding to. So a lot of progressive movements are working to reduce Dis, that disruptiveness because we care about social justice or peace or democracy or something like that. I'm saying, hey, guess what? If you did that in the right way, the things that we want that we're trying to do as progressives in our politics 
have the accident would have the accidental effect. Those are the same. The things we're trying to dismantle in terms of disruptiveness and injustice are the same things that are intensifying our egoism. So we're actually working in the right direction. And it turns out, on the one hand, we're in a system we don't understand has been optimized to make sure our spiritual project will fail. On the other hand, the things we're doing for other reasons as political progressives if we did them in the right way, they just might be dismantling the, the forces that are holding us so strongly in our ego identification. And so there's an opportunity to bring our spiritual and political progressive projects together in a way that you, just the fact that they suddenly are integrated in a new way, that alone leads to a sense of wholeness. But it could also be more effective. And it, can, it has the potential, like I've written a book it's not doesn't have that much distribution, but imagine for some reason it, it took hold. The I got idea got out there, or or other people come to the same idea, and, and the idea just gets to diffuse in there. Well, suddenly that could be a basis for political for progressive movements becoming more muscular, because suddenly you can make the case that that these action steps that I'm proposing, because they're going to advance social justice is going to have the accidental byproduct of advancing our psycho-spiritual development. And that should attract more people into the movements, including some of the people who are spiritually in, who are involved in spirituality but are not engaged in politics. Suddenly they would have more skin in the game to join the, the progressive movements that suddenly they see they aren't going to succeed. We aren't going to succeed in our spiritual endeavors if we don't if we don't make some headway on the on that progressive political stuff because it's dismant it's it turns out it could be helping to dismantle the forces that hold us stuck in our egoism yeah you know everything you're saying to me you know i come back to the it seems like a, a conversation that uh is quite prevalent and that is you know the the doing versus the being right because especially in the spiritual world, you know, I think many of us get to a place of, of deep acceptance, you know, acceptance and, and gratitude for how things are. And you could say that that would fly in the face of activism, right? Because I'm, I'm content where I'm at. So then I don't have this driving force to create any, any positive change. Um, so it's a very interesting conversation, but what, what you're saying is that you know, really, these two movements are are, are linked. Um, but I, I'm well, curious. I mean, yeah, I, 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 you're opening up a huge, interesting can of worms. I don't know how much you want to walk down that corridor. But I mean, you know, one thing is you and I happen to be a little in the Hindu world. Uh, the Buddhists tend to be uh, have more have more traction in our culture at the moment. One of the there's a I think there's some, there's several reasons for that, but but one of them is that the Buddhists are doing socially engaged spirituality more. I mean, integral yoga is different. There is no social engagement in integral yoga, but in general, if you look at the Hinduism in America, it starts with Vivekananda, who was socially engaged. Gandhi could have been the template for the introduction of Hinduism into the West, and he was socially engaged. He was a karma yogi. But it didn't happen. Hinduism, the, the Buddhists took up the mantle of social engagement, and and the Hindus were more bhaktis. We study, we study, we we're oryanas. We study the texts, and and we do our kirtan and you know our ecstatic practices. But there's not there's there, most of the Hindu teachers in the West have not been socially engaged. But I really think for well, you know, you mentioned that the subtitle of my book is decoding an ancient myth. To heal the hidden man. Well, the ancient myth. What's the ancient myth? Yeah. The ancient myth. We all know the Bhagavad Gita. Uh, the Bhagavad Gita. A lot of people don't know that Bhagavad Gita was never written as a self-standing document. It's a fragment of book six of an eighteen-book epic called the Mahabharata. The Mahabharata is the myth that I'm working with, which is the are some people sometimes described as the longest book ever written because it's seven times the length of the Odyssey and the Iliad put together. But the way I decode it, it's an allegory of psycho-spiritual development in which the metric they use for psycho-spiritual development is moral development. The, the heroes get to the heroes get to the heroes get to heaven at the end. They transcend the ego and then do a bunch of other stuff and finally get to enter 
heaven, which is a metaphor for enlightenment, not when they sort of have achieved non-duality, although they do, but it's when they achieve perfection and moral intuition. And so this idea of quiescent that, you know, I'm, that it's about producing contentment. Well, in the Mahabharata, it is not about producing contentment. It's about producing perfection in your understanding and fulfillment of Dharma. And so it's got the Mahabharata, in effect, has social engagement and ethics. That's it's at the core of spiritual development. And so any, if you've got spiritual development that is not leading to compassion and engagement from the Mahabharata's point of view, you ain't got spiritual development. Yeah, it doesn't so matter too, because it doesn't it, matter if you can transcend your ego and bliss out in non-duality to the Mahabharata. That ain't nothing. That's just not an accomplishment of consequence. Yeah, I think because I, th- I think in a way to really do that, it 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 it, it uh, imbues a sense of fearlessness in life. If I if I'm really grateful for everything that I have, everything that I've experienced so far, I'm not afraid of what the future might hold because I'm totally full, which to me, that, that person is the most powerful force. The person that has nothing to lose is the most powerful force that there is in terms of, of, of social action. Right. Also, because in terms the of way social that, way action, to- I mean, Patanjali's yoga sutras begin with ethics. You start with ethics. The spiritual path starts with ethics, with practicing ethics. Before you learn meditation, you learn ethics. And in theory, I don't know why it doesn't work out. In theory, in theory, if you transcended the ego, you ought to intrinsically be, you would think that that would automatically lead to social engagement. Because if I no longer experience myself as sharply separate from the world around me and others, the good of the other and and myself, there's no difference between those. So I would autom- you would think you would automatically go into compassionate action. It turns out that's not the case. It's quite possible to, you know, have a certain type of spiritual progress, but without ethical training and practice integrated into that, people don't automatically go into compassionate action. But frankly, spirituality doesn't interest me very much unless that's what it involves. I've, you know, I've always, I, when I first became personally interested in spirituality, it was partly to escape my suffering as a young person, at which I failed because I've suffered all my life anyway. But <laughs> it was partly to escape suffering and partly because you hear about bliss and you think, wouldn't I like to be blissful? But actually for me, I sort of have a bodhisattva impulse. It's not that I have bodhisattva capabilities. <laughs> I'm neither enlightened or, or, or all that. But my impulse personally, just I was born into this lifetime, like I want to help heal the, heal this world. And so for me, that for me, that happens to kind of be natural, but it's actually not natural for a lot of people. And so really, I think spiritual practice should always include an ethical social engagement, because I think you want that cultivated in everybody. But in any case, according to this text, I'm so steeped in the Mahabharata. That is the essence of spiritual self-realization is to become more compassionately self-engaged in the fulfillment of Dharma, which is always not just for your own benefit. So. You, you don't think that there's a correlation between doing the internal work yourself and taking the, the action? You just already told, you started, you're the one who already made that argument for me. You sort of said that you're the one who sort of said, I'm feeling contentment, so why would I want to do anything? I've gotten, I've gotten my, I've gotten more at peace with myself, and so I'm content, so the world seems good, so why would I want to do anything? I'm, and I'm saying if there are a lot of people like that, I agree with you, but I think that's not something to celebrate. I think that means we've been deficient in our spiritual practice, that that's where people are ending up. Yeah, no, well, I'm trying to say something different. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to say if, 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 if the, the real inner work is done, it's hard to know what's happening inside another person. Right. right? We, it's hard to know we, what's happening inside me. <laughs> there you go. That's how you know. Um, what I'm what I'm saying is like, can I trust in the internal work? Right, because there's so much what what I see in today's world. There's so much uh, attention on external. External, I can. It's so easy today to not look inside myself, right, and have strong opinions, and that's all the ego uh, working there. Uh, if the world was like this, you know, things are terrible, and all the, these inflated. Opinions with a lack of humility, 
you know, and a running away from what's actually happening inside my own being. And the question here is if I turn inside and genuinely become more interested in making this being that I have more control over than anything external, you know, will that lead to more external progress as a byproduct of doing that work? I think empirically, the answer is not necessarily. Just looking around the world, I think not. like, Like in my lineage, one of the foundational teachings is sadhana and seva. We're supposed to do spiritual practice, but every day there should be an element of selfless service. But that's not that's seen as integral to the sadhana. They're not really two separate things, but a complete sadhana has to have an element of serving something other than oneself. And that's partly about cultivating this orientation towards helping others, but it's, it's not, and it's, but you can't distinguish when you're doing that, it is helping yourself. That's yeah, advancing so maybe your the, I think that's the myth. To what? me, that's the myth that it's even possible to be totally selfless, right? Swami Satchidananda has a quote that I love, who will be the happiest person, the one who brings happiness to others. And so to, to really dive into that, that is, that, that's, that's a shift that, it's okay that nature is set up. It, to me, it's one of the most beautiful things that nature is actually set up this way, that I, my heart receives something by helping uh, something outside of myself. Doing some good outside of myself, it feeds feeds me. So these things aren't disconnected. Yeah, that's right. But that's a little different than, than, than when, you were, when you were starting off with this idea that, you know, my, that spiritual practice is just about going inward. In, in my lineage, and I think it's intrinsic from what I've read of integral yoga, you don't, that's not all that spiritual practice is. It's inter, going inward is part of spiritual practice, but it's not, the, it's, not, it's not sufficient. Well, in a way, I'm saying that like my mind does well if I, if I have complete focus and I simplify as much as possible. For me, if I simplify. So if I simplify that, that my goal is to make this being as, um, to reach its potential, you know, as much as possible to go as, as far along on that path, then, um, then there's a balance there, right? Between I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to accomplish that if I don't interact with the world outside of myself. So even when I'm doing karma yoga, helping other people around me, that's a part of my own self-development. Those things are right. disconnected. So everything right. Right. is my self-development, even whether I'm meditating by myself in a room or helping someone else in an emergency that they're having. They're all for my self-development. Simple. Right. But I, for me, you know, I don't want to tell, I don't, what do I know about what other people should do? For me, just being on the mat isn't enough. I agree that, you know, when I'm, if I'm doing, if I'm trying to be a karma yogi, that's working on myself in addition to helping the world. If I choose to only be on the mat, I mean, there may be some benefit to that to the world. It might be, you know, there's a, there's a theory that I hear all the time and that might be true, which is just the pure vibrations that come from that are, are a contribution to the world. And that may be true. I, I actually don't know that myself. Maybe it's true. It feels to me that wouldn't be enough for me. If I was just on the mat, I think I need to be, I think for my own development and the world, I need to be doing something besides just on the mat. Although I'll respect it. I mean, I guess for me, if I knew someone was on the mat and I could feel that behind they're in their heart where they're at with that and that their concern is with there's a compassion there and a concern i could i could imagine okay i can see with the sincerity of their energy that by being on the mat i believe that they really are making a contribution to the world but it we there better not be all of us are only doing that because the world needs something besides just us being on the mat especially if my book is right that needs it needs us to be just working on addressing the macro social forces that are holding us stuck in this intense ego identification i don't think that just a bunch of us being on the mat is under is going to address the pro, the downside of global capitalism yeah i don't i'm not too worried about that problem of like that, that, that in a way that would be a good problem to have if like the entire you know human population stops what they're doing to meditate throughout the day like well that okay, would be like, addressing capitalism and a lot of other things <laughs> yeah um 
I wanted to ask you about democracy, though, because I, I know you're you're very interested in this. And, you know, I've been finding it um, quite well, fascinating. You should, let, you should let people know my first book was, yeah. was called Democracy and Technology. Yeah, de- de- Democracy and Technology. And I, have, I have a PhD in political philosophy. Yeah. So I, I think it, it, it's wise to take a step back and just look at democracy. You know, for most of us living in this country, we, we've heard about democracy our whole lives. Yeah, democracy is a great thing. But like, do my question is, do we really believe in democracy? And is there any better system? And talking to a lot of different people, I've actually been somewhat surprised that more people than I realize, I think, don't really believe in democracy is the best system. I haven't heard a better a better alternative. So I'm curious what that might be. But like that when it comes down to it, a very common perspective is we can't let everyone decide because the majority of the population, they don't really know what they're doing. You know, they're ignorant, you know, me and maybe a few of my friends, the, the elites are the ones that uh, should really um, be, be deciding. And so I'm curious your perspective on this, just like is democracy the best we can do in terms of a system? Gosh, it's so, uh, first of all, it's not really, it's, it, I have, it's, you know, I've been doing my Mahabharata critique of modern civilization thing. My, my democracy hat takes me back more 30 years, but um, democracy is not one thing. There's many different forms of democracy. Our, our, our democracy at the moment is barely. <laughs> right. I mean, it's so, it's our system has been so broken for 30 years. We haven't had a functional Congress. Um, yeah, but I don't, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not even talking about pol- political. That's a different thing. You're right. Like, I, I wouldn't even call that a democracy. I'm just talking about like fresh eyes. Like, let's just look at the idea of everyone having an equal say in in, in what happens. That, that well, is a part, of, part of it, of, uh, my, you know, my understanding of a more effective democracy, you know, I, when I was involved as a democratic theorist and activist, it was always oriented towards more egalitarian and participatory modes of democracy, um, which always has an educative dimension to it. It doesn't take people just as they are and throw them into a voting booth. It's a matter of social processes and structures that culti- cultivate our capacity for citizenship and mature judgment. Um, and it's, there's certain, I was involved in, in ex- various kinds of experiments with uh, egalitarian deliberative democracy nationally and, and internationally. And I write in my book somewhere in uh, chapter 16, I, I have a little riff on, 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 on some forms of, de- of, of democratic pra- practice that I think are quite, um, that, that, that have a strong in, in, intrinsic spiritual de- dimension. There's, there's forms of egalitarian deliberation in which unenlightened people are put in a process that tends to produce a relatively enlightened judgment. And so there are forms of democratic practice, and I discuss one in the book in chapter 16, that I think are, that have a, an intrinsic spiritual, not, you don't have to believe anything about spirituality, but they, they function. In, and, and these are real institutions that are practiced at small scale all over the place. Um, so there are aspects of democratic practice that I think show promise and they're not the ones that dominate our, or the forms of democracy that we have that, are, that dominate do not have those characteristics. I mean, right now, our system is incredibly damaged. Um, I want to go back to this, the ego structure and how it, it develops, because from, from my experience, you know, the child doesn't have it, right? And so it's formed at some, at some point. And then, you know, many of us become very interested in detangling. So this, um, this, uh, this concept, um, indoctrination into this, this system of, uh, being very identified with my separate self, you know, I experienced that for a while. And then as a result of maybe the pain and suffering, many of us say, okay, I need something different and then find something. But what I'm curious is if you have any insights in how this structure is developed, you know, how are we convincing the child to take this on essentially? No, I'm not the right person for that. And that's because I'm, well, I've, for, to write this book, I had to 
teach myself some developmental psychology, but but primarily I've been working with adult developmental psychology. The Mahabharata is not a book, for instance, is not a text that's strong on child development. It's it's really a text on on adult psycho spiritual development. So this the question you're asking about the f- initial formation of the ego is an interesting question to me, but I'm not going to pretend to have anything very, any great expertise to contribute to that. You don't have an opinion on Well, I mean, I'm a parent and now I'm a grandparent. So, and I'm watching, I have a new, my first grandchild's five and I'm looking at him and sort of watching (laughs) sort of, is this got an, is this, is do I see an ego here yet? And at five months, mm, probably not. Meaning, I don't think he's distinguishing a whole that he between self and other in that way yet. Um, but anyway, I don't. I don't know that I have anything. I don't feel like I have anything of genius to say about how about, how the about a healthy ego. Have you have you thought much about this? Like the concept of that the ego is here, so it does have a role to play, um, and there is such a thing as a, as a healthy ego. If so, what is that? Well. Again, I'm steeped in a particular text. In the Mahabharata, the structure as I decode it, and, you know, it's, I, it's an interpretation of the Mahabharata, but the structure I see is that, the, that it's a 5,000-page text, which is basically, the first half of it is basically a struggle between the ego and soul for supremacy. And the soul, it turns out, you know, in a sense, the ego is the bad guy in the story, but not really. The soul can't. The soul in the first half of their life journey of the protagonists, it's in through contesting with the ego that the soul is formed and matures, and so eventually has to take on the ego and destroy it, but but couldn't get there without the ego. And in fact, it really freaks the soul out when the character who represents the soul when he finally makes it to heaven at the end of the five thousand pages. The character who represents the ego is already sitting in heaven waiting for him, and it freaks him out and pisses the shit out of him. But the ego is <laughs> sitting up there in heaven because it fulfilled its dharma of allowing the soul to succeed in its journey. Wow. So, but, it's, it, but it's irrelevant that it, whether it's a healthy ego or not. It's just the, the, the ego's task is to, allow, is to c- contribute to the development of the soul. And the, but a very fascinating part about the Mahabharata, it's 18 volumes, and I interpret those as eight, an allegory of 18 stages in psycho-spiritual development. The interesting thing is in our daily lives, the way you and I in our spiritual world, we tend to bandy, hear bandy about, and we ourselves probably bandy about ego transcendence. When you have ego transcendence, when you, if you somehow did that, you'd be enlightened. And the Mahabharata is extremely explicit from its point of view, no way, Jose, <laughs> because the the the, the 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 dramatic centerpiece of the Mahabharata is a war. Eight, four of the eighteen four big volumes of the eighteen volumes of the epic in the middle are the war. The war is the war, the decisive existential struggle between the soul and the ego. At the end of book nine, the soul succeeds in extinguishing the ego. But there's nine more books. When they after the even after the ego is vanquished, that's not enlightenment. You're only halfway there. And I find that actually enormously helpful if to me in a variety of ways. One is like a lot of us, I'm prone to ego inflation. And one of the times you get ego inflation all the time is every time you think, oh, am I on the edge of enlightenment? Am I about to transcend the ego? And that instantly, if you think that ego transcendence means enlightenment, it turns out that ego transcendence then automatically leads to ego inflation because you transcend the ego and that immediately makes you go into the inflation of thinking you're enlightened. And the Mahabharata is really helpful to me because it sort of tells me, even if you got to the stage of extinguishing your ego, you aren't enlightened. You got more work to do. The so other part that's really interesting, the, I'll tell you that in a sec, but the other part that's interesting about this is, you know, if the ideas for, that we're going for in the spiritual world is enlightenment, well, empirically, guess what? Almost nobody gets there. And in the modern world, if anybody gets there, almost nobody stays there. It's extremely elusive as a goal. But the Mahabharata opens up this middle terrain. It sort of said, well, there's a lot of spiritual, psycho-spiritual progress to be made that actually is quite accessible, whereas the chance that any of us are going to be enlightened 
you know, as spiritual teachers, it's so spiritual teachers always are offering enlightenment, but very few of them, if any, are enlightened, and and none of their students pretty much ever are going to be, including me. So it's it's like if you think you're aiming for enlightenment, well, if you're Catholic, take, look at that with a cold empirical eye, your odds are extremely low. But the Mahabharata opens up this valuable middle terrain that is not so inaccessible, which has merit and value in itself, even if you never make it through enlightenment. And I don't expect that's going to happen to me because empirically the odds are real, real, real. Yeah, but low. what are we even talking about? What is what is enlightenment? I mean, I you, you said it's like uh, distinguishing the ego, but then that is not even it. Yeah, so well, well, what, actually, what, is it what, what, what are we talking about? Well, I can tell you my favorite story from the Mahabharata if you want to hear it. <laughs> I mean, in, you asked one question, we, we digress. When I say they, they, in the Mahabharata, at the end of book nine, the ego's gone. But there's nine more books. In the next, the first nine books, the, the, main, the protagonists, which are five brothers and a joint wife, the protagonists are working towards transcending the ego. In the remaining nine books, they are at one level working towards transcending dualism. But really, through the 18 books, what they're working towards is perfection in discerning and fulfilling moral duty, dharma. What they're really working towards is, the, is perfection in dharma. And they tell this, I can tell this a little cute little story from the end if you want to hear it. Sure. So there's, there, so the book nine of this 18 book epic, you know, the five brothers have, have killed the ego in a terrible war. And... Uh, all through the book, um, Krishna is, uh, is, the, is Lord Krishna, an avatar, is, is sort of in the background helping them out um, along the way. And, and we all, a lot of us know the Bhagavad Gita, which again is from book six of the Mahabharata. And in book six, you know, Krishna is there helping Arjuna, you know, get ready for the war with the ego. But um, at, in book 16 of the 18 books, Krishna dies. And Krishna has to die because up till now, in their long journey through the protagonists of the, who represent the soul, in their long journey through their life, he's been in the background helping them. But at the very high stage, their attachment to him, to Krishna, is holding them back from going the distance. So he dies. And that's devastating to them. But it releases them from bhakti and onto completing their karma path. And, and the five brothers, they're distraught. They've, they've lost Krishna. They renounce their, their kingdom. One of them's a king. And they and their joint wife start to climb up to the Himalayas. And as they're climbing, a stray dog follows along. And they're climbing up. And one by one, the, the lead character, the king, is named Yudhistra, who is Whose, funk, whose mission in life is to understand Dharma and you know, discern correctly and fulfill Dharma. He's been trying to do that. As they're climbing to the Himalayas one by one, Yudhistra's, the joint wife and the four brothers die. And finally, they have to die because they actually represent, the, all these characters together represented the soul and the parts have to kind of fall away so that the, so we can move towards un, unity and union. And as they, Yudhistra is heading, it makes it to the top of the Himalayas, to the gate of heaven, only the dog is still there, <laughs> the stray dog. And, uh, and you have to understand in Hinduism, uh, dogs don't get a lot of love. You know, Hanuman and Ganesh, you know, the monkey god and the elephant god, a lot of animals get love. They represent gods. But the dog is impure because the dog eats everything. It's indiscriminate and it symbolizes in that world impurity. So this impure animals following along with Yudhistra, the king, who gets to the gate of heaven and Lord Indra, the king of the gods, steps out and, of heaven and, and welcomes Yudhistra and says, come on in, get rid of the dog. And all through his life up till now, Yudhistra has wanted to do the right thing, but he doesn't know what it is. And he he's all through the 5,000 pages. He's asking Krishna what he should do, his brothers, his wife, different sages. He's trying to work it out and figure out what he should do. And he's, you know, trying to, and he's, and he's making progress, but he's, he still always has to confer with people and think about it. And now at the culmination of his journey, about to enter heaven, has the opportunity. Lord Indra, king of the gods, says, come on in, lose the dog. And he can't do it. And he says to he says to Indra, can't can't do it. The dog isn't my dog, but it's a fellow creature. And if I say yes to do you, the dog dies. I I can't do it. And the dog 
transmutes into Lord Dharma, the, the king of morality, who is mm. the actual father of Yudhisthira. And, and it's a pure tantric teaching, even though if you study ta- the history of tantra, it's seen as something that was really a sort of a seventh or eighth century AD phenomenon. This is, that, that's wrong. This is a pure teaching because this is sort of saying that the most impure has divinity within it. And when Eudistra sees the God has told him what to do, and Eudistra said, no, God, you're wrong. I'm not going to forsake that. And the, and, and, and the divinity of the impure is revealed. And with that, he, he's, he has perfected his moral intuition, despite God trying to throw him off and saying, lose the dog. He says, God, you're wrong. I'm not abandoning this fellow creature. And with that, he has perfected moral intuition, and he is seeing with the God's eyes. He's seeing the divinity within the impure. He enters heaven. Wow. That is so great. (laughs) I love it so much. Because, you know, in a way, there's this, this tendency, I think, in human beings to look for answers outside of ourselves. And so that, that message there is to really trust within myself what, what, what is right. Like even this God is telling me, you know, lose the dog, but that doesn't feel right inside of me. So what am I going to listen to? I'm going to listen to the external but God he's outside. not asking you, you, you know, you and I might be asking that about the ethics of a certain consumer purchase or something. He's, he's addressing this in the context of he's worked his whole life to get to heaven. And now he's got the chance for the sing, and he's willing to sacrifice the most important goal of his life for Dharma and, and, and go against the word of God to fulfill what he sees as Dharma at that moment. So he's doing it in this like existential context of the opportunity to fulfill his life ambition to enter heaven. He's willing to sacrifice it to do the right thing. What's there, too, is I think the power of the present moment, right? Because there's there's a little bit of a conflict there of like, you know, all this time of striving towards a certain goal and then being about to get there versus what feels right in the present moment. Richard, amazing to speak with you. I, I love this work that you're doing, and it's it's been total pleasure to dive into some of this stuff um, with you. Uh, what's the best way for people to to fo- follow up, learn about your book, learn more about you? Well, I, I have it down there. Can, does it show on the screen? I've got the... It the, does, my, Escaping Maya's Palace. Can, yeah, if people are watching the video, but they might also oh, be yeah, listening. So, you know, so yeah. there's a, I have, the book is called Escaping Maya's Palace. It's, you know, available online in the usual places. And there's a, I have a website, escapingmayaspalace.com. I have a, my website is richardsclove dot com which also you can get to the book from there all right richard one last question for you are you having fun <laughs> right at the this is fun <laughs> this is talking with you is fun enjoying it too thanks so much it's a pleasure thank you thanks for listening if you've enjoyed this content and think others might as well please feel free to share and subscribe